Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want the best and you got it. I the land. DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. And now, on with the show. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 10 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Christian Swain here, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. Episode 10, a small milestone and an opportunity to extend some big gratitude to you, our listeners and supporters. You rock. Yes, you do. Thank you very much. We know you've been patient on us, and we appreciate the feedback, the kicks in the pants, etc. I guess it's a good problem to have. We are again working diligently, so the delay between episodes will become shorter. And in response to some of your feedback, we've decided to shorten up the opening part of the show and just get right to it. So let's go ahead and say hello to our friends at Lilybell Farms. We're very excited to introduce the Rock and Roll Chocolatiers, the pride of Southern Oregon, our friends at Lily Bell Farms. Lily Bell Farms makes an amazing range of sensual, scrumptious, mind-blowing chocolate goodies. Exotic caramels, luxury truffles, chocolate bars, and more. Handmade, artisanal, using organically grown, fair trade chocolate beans from around the world. They've won all kinds of national and international awards. And friends, from personal experience, I'm telling you, you gotta try Lily Bell Farms chocolate. Also, many friends and family have purchased Lily Bell Farms goodies to use for gifts. And they're always a big hit with clients, friends, or anyone you need to make feel special. You can order online or over the phone. The service is fast and friendly, and they ship everywhere. Check them out, lilybellfarms.com. That's L-I-L-L-I-E-B-E-L-L-E Farms. Or you can just click through from our website, Lilybell Farms. Life may be sweeter for this. Hey, we've got a website, www.rockandrollarchaeology.com. All the social media links are there. You can get all of our podcasts and the show notes for each episode. We have another delicious giveaway from Lily Bell Farms. Click and comment on Facebook or Twitter or leave a review on iTunes and you will be automatically.
safely entered. For our American listeners, we have a message line, 650-822-ROCK. Leave a cool comment or a good story. If you're interested in supporting our efforts financially, well, first of all, we thank you kindly. And there is a support the project link right up top on our front page. And finally, you can click through from our site to Amazon.com and purchase nearly all the music, films, and books we feature in the show. Your cost will be the same, but Amazon will kick a few pennies our way for the referral. Okay, that's it. So, let's get to it. Right now, this is Episode 10, Roll Away the Stones. Okay, so I'm at number six Broadwick Street in Soho, a storied London neighborhood. Number six Broadwick is now a lingerie boutique called Agent Provocateur. So across the street we go. Okay, now I'm at number seven Broadwick in front of a record shop called Sounds of the Universe. It's a converted pub, a funky looking place. My kind of music store. I will definitely head inside to browse in a bit. But first, a little about this place. In the spring and summer of 1962, it was a pub called the Bricklayer's Arms. In those days, according to rock writer Paul Trinka, it was a wonderfully sleazy hangout, and the blues songs spilling out of the red light district attracted a gaggle of girls. Brian Jones, a brilliant, enigmatic, and tragically flawed young man with a knack for playing slide guitar like nobody else in the UK at that time, had decided to put together a new act. At 21 years of age, he was already a seasoned pro with over 100 gigs under his belt, mostly as part of the Blues Incorporated. Blues Incorporated was a sort of cooperative gang of British musicians who fancied American blues music and who played regularly at the Marquee Club in Soho. In April of 1962, here at the Bricklayer's Arms, Brian auditioned two enthusiastic newcomers to the scene, school chums Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. That spring and summer, the new group rehearsed and gigged here, learning to bang out about 20 rock and roll and blues songs, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, Muddy Waters, and Helen Wolf. They had many American influences, but the chess sound, that amped up, tough-sounding Chicago blues, that was the influence they all shared and loved the most. They settled on the Rolling Stones for a name, a line from the Muddy Waters song, Manish Boy. Oh, yeah. I hear those 
sure we'll forget the tune that Andy called the Memphis Blues. you back in time to the turn of the 20th century. Let's hop a southbound train. Our destination, Clarksdale, Mississippi, 75 miles due south of Memphis. The tracks follow U.S. Route 61. That storied highway follows the meandering contours of the Mississippi River. Rolling on, down towards the bottomlands, and down into the Delta. Just outside of Clarksdale, Highway 61 crosses Highway 49. It is a mythical crossroads, and we will return to it. We open our story right here in Clarksdale, way back in June of 1901. Charles Peabody arrived in Clarksdale, seat of Coahoma County, up in the northwest corner of Mississippi, to direct an archaeological dig. Charles was the newly installed director of the Robert Peabody Museum of Archaeology at the Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, the oldest high school in America. The elder Peabody was a successful Phillips alumni, and he endowed the museum earlier that year to further his own keen interests in archaeology, an interest he passed on to his son. Charles had come south to Clarksdale to excavate some Choctaw and Chickasaw burial mounds. In his 1981 book, Deep Blues, the Rolling Stones writer and editor Robert Palmer takes up the story. He stocked up on provisions hired some wagons, and recruited some black workmen. And one sunny morning, his party set off for the first dig, 15 miles outside of town. To Peabody's surprise, his workmen immediately burst into rhythmic song and kept it up all the way to the campsite. One strong-voiced man would take the lead, improvising lines. The others would answer with a refrain, The time ain't long, or going down the river, sung in rough unison. Peabody published an article about the work songs he heard in Clarksdale in the Journal of American Folklore two years later, in the summer of 1903. It's telling that he published this piece a full year before his article on what he actually found at the burial mounds. same time Peabody published his scholarly article, William Christopher Handy settled in Clarksdale to direct a newly formed black band. Raised in Florence, Alabama, W.C. Handy had acquired a musical education over the objections of his father, a stern religious fanatic who considered music a tool of the devil. By 1903, W.C. Handy was 30 years of age, a family man, and an accomplished professional musician. He had tried the academic route to teaching music at a segregated college in Alabama, but the dean insisted he teach his young black students European techniques and traditions in music. W.C. Handy chafed at these restrictions. What's more, the pay wasn't very good, and he had a family to support. 
Handy was trained up in the traditional European way. He played multiple instruments, and he could read and write music. He also had a keen ear and a real fondness for plain song and field chant for ragtime. Uh, for this new music out of New Orleans that blended these and other strains, jazz. He left the Academy in 1902 and spent the better part of that year wandering the plantations and barrel houses of Mississippi, listening and learning. In his 1941 autobiography, Father of the Blues, Handy described his first encounter with the Delta Blues. A lean, loose-jointed Negro had commenced plunking a guitar beside me while I slept. As he played, he pressed a knife on the strings of the guitar in a manner popularized by Hawaiian guitarists who used steel bars. The singer repeated the line three times, accompanying himself on the guitar with the weirdest music I had ever heard. Riding on a night train near Tutwiler, Mississippi, W.C. Handy received the blues. He started putting that flavor into his compositions, like the peppy St. Louis blues we heard a moment ago from the legendary Jango Reinhardt. Handy is among the first composers to bring the blues to a wider audience in America, back in the early decades of the 20th century. It's a notable accomplishment, but the deep blues, the real stuff, those blues would stay in the Delta a little while longer. John was a career academic, a folklorist and anthropologist whose career had stalled. In an attempt to get things going again, he enlisted his son to help him with this field trip. John had managed to secure a modest grant from the Library of Congress to cover expenses, food, gas, a Ford Model A sedan, and a hand-wound gadget called an ediphone that recorded sound onto wax cylinders. In search of authentic folk music, untouched and unsullied by the larger society and by the popular culture of the day, father and son visited plantations, work camps, roadhouses, and prisons. As early as the mid-1920s, folklorists, mostly from schools and museum societies in the North and Midwest, academic types, started making field recordings in the rural South. Some of them were even able to gain access to prisons. But John Lomax was a native. He spoke with the drawl and cadence of the American South, and he also carried the imprimatur of the Library of Congress. And John had built relationships over the years with other academics and with some local politicians, so he was able to gain access where others could not. 
And perhaps most importantly, John Lomax and his bright teenage son, Alan, they were on a mission. They had personal motives, a burning curiosity that drove them to push harder, take it further. Prisons held a certain fascination for John Lomax, as they did for most Southern men, who had grown up hearing stories of men who were broken by heat and dehydration and the dawn-to-dusk work of the prison farms, or who had simply disappeared, lost in the system, incarcerated, under the jail. That's from the book Alan Lomax, The Man Who Recorded the World by John Swed, published in 2010. Swed continues. There remained, nonetheless, an awful dignity rooted in a certain body of knowledge that was passed from generation to generation of inmates. And it was that knowledge, that lore, that made some degree of artful living possible. Prisons were a warped mirror of a segregated world, so it was there, among black men, the Lomaxes reasoned that a degree of cultural purity might still be found. Across Texas into Louisiana. In Baton Rouge, they picked up some better recording equipment, including a mixer and a playback amplifier. They traveled on, working 12-hour days and camping out at night. On a map, the state of Louisiana is shaped like a capital L. In the corner of that L, on the west bank of the Mississippi River, is Angola, Louisiana, home of the Louisiana State Prison. In the early July, the Lomaxes arrived at Angola. After much haggling and negotiation with the warden, the two were allowed inside to conduct interviews and record songs by inmates. Angola, a dreadful medieval place. Historically, one of America's most notorious prisons. They spent four days there. The menace, the despair, the fear inside the fence was palpable. Within minutes of going inside, John and Alan realized they would get no protection from the warden and his staff. As far as the guards were concerned, they were nothing but a couple of do-gooder outsiders looking to start trouble. And if something terrible were to happen, well, you know what? Prison is a rough place. In later years, Alan Lomax, slightly built, bookish, precocious, all of 18 years old at the time... Alan would recall how the guards would snap the black snake, the bullwhip they used on prisoners, snap it right next to his ear and laugh at his startled reaction. The black prisoners were suspicious too. Many refused to interact in any way with his father and son team of white song collectors. These songs were about the only thing the prisoners could call their own. Moreover, the songs were a form of covert communication a way of getting word around the prison without the guards knowing. The Lomaxes persevered, collected songs, and took notes, but by and large, it was a disappointing visit. Until the last day. Just as they were about to leave Angola, John and Alan Lomax met a remarkable singer and guitarist, an Angola inmate named of Hootie Ledbetter. Everyone, and I do mean everyone, called him Leadbelly. 
John Sweat takes up the story. He was hard to miss. A powerful presence, bold, outspoken, and at 42, unbowed by his years in prisons. He had earned his name from a life of toughness, from his strength, his badness, and a bullet in his stomach. Though only 5 feet 7 inches tall and 171 pounds, he appeared bigger than he was and seemed to give off light when he sang. He spoke with confidence, pride, and an undisguised intelligence, none of it part of the standard prisoner's repartee. You're a About a year later, Lead Belly was released from Angola. The legend, pushed by John Lomax and others, is that Lead Belly sang his way out of the prison. He recorded a song addressed to the governor of Louisiana, who heard it and decided to show latitude to this talented prisoner. Lead Belly really did send a record to the governor, but the truth is far more mundane. The state was in a budget crunch, so they gave him time off for good behavior and cut him loose. In late 1934, John Lomax did a lecture tour discussing the folk music he had uncovered. The talks were capped by live performances from Lead Belly, singing and playing the 12-string guitar. The lectures were well-received in academia and beyond, and the elder Lomax was offered a book deal. By New Year, Lead Belly was being featured in newsreel films and in the press. There were many twists and turns to Lead Belly's music career, which ended with his death in 1949. But his influence lives on and on and on. Lead Belly left big musical footprints all over rock and roll. Green's Clearwater Revival, Led Zeppelin, Nirvana, Tom Petty, and of course, the Rolling Stones. That's just a short list of big-name rockers who've covered songs by Lead Belly. John and Alan Lomax uncovered something truly remarkable, something uniquely American. Alan would follow in his father's footsteps and go on to record the world, just as the title of John Sweat's book says. The Smithsonian Museum has digitally archived a huge chunk of Alan's work, and it is available to the world. This body of work is a national treasure. Please, go check it out. There's a link in the show notes. Oh, Black Betty, Bambalam, oh, Black Betty, Bambalam, Black Betty had a baby, Bambalam, Black Betty had a baby, Bambalam, them thing gone crazy, Bambalam, them thing gone crazy, Bambalam, oh, Black Betty, 
So by the 1930s, the music of the Mississippi Delta, the deep blues, was beginning to spread to attract a small but devoted audience outside of the plantations, the roadhouses, and the prisons of the South. Folklorists and academics like Charles Peabody and the Lomaxes had brought some of it north, along with mainstream musicians who incorporated some blues flavor into their tunes, like W.C. Handy. Some small record companies, notably Paramount and Vocalion, had tracked down some of the blues artists native to the Delta and had recorded and released their work commercially starting in the late 20s. Remember way back in episode 1 and 2 when we talked about race records? These are some of the first race records. It was not big business. A successful record was one that sold a couple of thousand copies. Most were bought by jukebox owners, not individual consumers. shows a county growing in population, growing quite a bit faster than the state as a whole. This growth trend continues on through 1940 or so and then begins to level off. Northwest Mississippi was uncleared, rough country, until the early 20th century. New land to clear meant new work for farmhands. 
difficult, back-breaking work to be sure, but it was also wage labor that was not tied to any one plantation or landowner. It's a measure of the sheer desperation of black Mississippians in those times, this tiny sliver of freedom, an opportunity to do low-paid, hard labor in the sweltering Mississippi heat on a day-to-day basis to get paid in cash. Bad as it was, it beat sharecropping or working the fields for room and board. Mississippi's black working population shifted and drifted northward throughout the early 20th century, But that's not the whole story. We see something else in census numbers. By 1940, whites outnumbered blacks overall in Mississippi for the first time ever. That's because this northern drift, this demographic trend within Mississippi, was feeding a much larger national trend. This crossroads in Clarksdale was a staging ground for one of the largest internal migrations in world history. The Great Migration. This exodus, this movement of the people, is one of the biggest stories in American history, and half the story has never been told, at least not until very recently. The Great Migration. Goodbye to Mississippi. So long to the South. Farewell to all of it. The final crossroad. The last fair deal gone down. Right here, just north of Clarksdale. Stand in the side. Make your deal with the devil. Highway 61 north to Memphis and beyond to the eastern United States, Philadelphia, New York City. Or perhaps Highway 49, which jumps the Mississippi, heads northwest through Arkansas up to Sweet Home Chicago. From 1910 to 1960, over 6 million African Americans, about half of all black Southerners, moved out of the states of the old confederacy to New York, to Los Angeles, and most of all, to Chicago. We'll let Robert Palmer, the author of Deep Blues, set the scene. On they came, rolling up the Illinois Central and M&O lines. Young men, out on their own for the first time, determined women clutching children, whole families dressed formally in their Sunday best. And now, the journalist and historian Isabel Wilkerson will take up the story, excerpted from her 2011 book, The Warmth of Other Sons. What binds these stories together was the the back-against-the-wall, reluctant yet hopeful search for something better, any place but where they were. They did what human beings looking for freedom throughout history have often done. They left. So let's step back for a moment and think about all of this. We've met some interesting folks, talked about Mississippi, the Delta, and the Delta Blues. We brought up some of the larger forces at play, especially the demographic force of the Great Migration. And we assert right here, this is a big part of the American story, largely overlooked until Professor Wilkerson wrote her terrific book a few years ago. 
So, in the first half of the 20th century, there were all these musicians and academics, and even some record men, who traveled the Delta in search of the blues. We've met a few of them. They found the blues in and around Mississippi and spread the word. Thanks to them, we can trace the origins. But that's not what really brought the blues to the world. Isabel Wilkerson, once again. So rose the language and music of urban America that sprang from the blues that came with the migrants, and that dominates our airwaves to this day. We firmly agree with Professor Wilkerson. The real push, the inexorable and irresistible push, what brought the deep blues out of the South, in our view, that has to be the Great Migration, and that is entirely fitting and proper. Our view is that blues music is an essential part of the rock and roll story, and we think the blues story is fully tied in with another essential story, the Great Migration. These stories are bound up in the story of America's original sin, centuries of importing, selling, and enslaving millions of human beings from the continent of Africa. All that bloodshed in the American Civil War, all that blood failed to wash away that sin. It just took on a new shape and a new name, Jim Crow. Jim Crow pervaded every aspect of daily life in the South. Isabel Wilkerson documents a city ordinance in Birmingham, Alabama that made it illegal for black and white men to play checkers together. Checkers. But Jim Crow earned its greatest notoriety for making it nearly impossible for black Southerners to vote, and that was firmly in place all the way up until 1965. But well before that, as Isabel Wilkerson so movingly documents, America's servant class decided to vote in the one way they could, with their feet. And the blues was swept up and borne along on the tide of this great migration. We will also follow the flow of the great migration and take our story north and beyond. But before we leave Mississippi, we have to meet two more of her sons. First up, the most celebrated and controversial of all the Delta Blues men, Robert Johnson. and speculation about the life and times of Robert Leroy Johnson. The actual documented facts are really thin. And the mystery of it, well, that's part of the appeal. What gives his story mythical status? There is no birth certificate, but the consensus seems to be that he was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, on or around May 8, 1911, one of ten children born to Julia Dodds. His biological father was probably a man named Noah Johnson. But at the time of his birth, Julia was married to a man named Charles Dodds. 
Robert bounced around between relatives as a child. Census records place him in Arkansas in 1920, and there are school enrollment records that place him in Mississippi as a teenager from 1924 to 1927. Those records and the quality of his signature on his 1929 marriage certificate suggest that Robert had a decent education for a young man of his background. By this time, he had adopted the surname of his biological father. He signed Robert Johnson on that marriage certificate. Who's that riding down the revelator? Tell me who's that riding down the revelator? Tell me who's that riding John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seas. Who's that writing? John the Revelator. Who's that writing? John the Revelator. Tell me who's that writing? John the Revelator wrote the book of the seven seas. You know, God walked down the coolest day, called Adam by his name, but he refused that. That's a cut from Sunhouse, a preacher-turned-blues man who worked the Delta in the 20s and 30s. In later years, Sun would say he met Robert around this time in 1929, possibly in Robinsonville, Mississippi. Sunhouse's influence on Robert's music can be clearly heard. That much is for certain. The other really notable influence on Robert was Charlie Patton. Born in 1891, Charlie was the Dean, the first and the best of the traveling Delta bluesmen in the 20s and 30s. It's a shame, but most of the recordings of Charlie Patton are of low quality, even by the standards of the time. In 1934, only a few months before his death, Charlie did make a few recordings using better gear in New York City, but he was ill, and most of his fans agree they are low-energy performances. What we can discern from those scratchy, noisy recordings is that Charlie Patton was expanding the blues idiom, reworking the format combining diverse influences. He would use the music to tell stories and go beyond that, couching his stories in metaphor. Robert Johnson definitely picked up on that trick, and he very likely picked it up from Charlie Patton. We are leaving a lot out here. It's only fair to acknowledge that. The Delta Blues was just one strain of the music and culture of black America in those years. Throughout the South, world-class gospel choirs sang in churches on Sunday and would go on tour throughout the U.S. and Europe. The Fisk Jubilee Choir out of Nashville famously sang in London for Queen Victoria way back in the 1870s. St. Louis bounced to ragtime and New Orleans percolated to the emerging sound of jazz. West Texas had its own powerful and compelling strain of the country blues. But we're going to stick with the Mississippi part of the story and zero in on Robert and one other guy whom we will meet shortly. Hopefully, before long, you will understand why. 
now to consolate my mind. Some pretty mama, she start breaking down, stop breaking down. Please stop breaking down. I just never got a bunch of brain down, baby. It'll make you lose your mind. As we mentioned a moment ago, Robert got married in 1929. His bride was 16-year-old Virginia Travis. Uh, Virginia died in childbirth just a few months later. In May of 1931, Robert remarried to Coletta Clark, and in early 1932, the couple moved north to Clarksdale, to the crossroads. In 1932, Coletta also died in childbirth. Alone again, on his own again, 21 years of age and already twice a widower, Robert Johnson decided to make his living as a musicianer, a walking blues man. It took him a few years to establish himself as a top-tier performer in the Delta, playing the barrel houses and plantation dances, busking on the sidewalk for tips during the day, hopping freights and hitching rides from town to town. He ventured well outside of the Delta more than a few times, doing paid shows in Dallas, Memphis, St. Louis, and Chicago. He may have even traveled to New York City on one occasion and played there. I woke up this morning Year round for my shoes But you know about it, I got to walking One can read over and over how the deep blues style traveled from Africa and was nurtured in the fields of the South, then served as the roots of virtually all that is unique and great in American music. Very rarely does one read about the influences that traveled in the other direction, the extent to which rural African Americans in the Deep South were consumers and fans of pop music coming to them from the cities. That's from Elijah Wald's 2004 book, Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. Wald makes a great point here, and then he amplifies on it. White urbanites are fascinated by a creation myth in which genius blossomed wild and untamed from the Delta mud and are less interested in the unromantic picture of muddy waters sitting by the radio or a sharecropper singing Broadway show tunes. Wald is hammering home an important idea. These black musicians working the Delta were pros, not primitives, to use another phrase from his book. They practiced their craft. They listened avidly to all kinds of music and incorporated diverse influences into their recordings and live shows. These traveling musicianers in Mississippi were not barefoot or barely literate, or even all that poor. Not the good ones, anyway. By the standards of the time and place, they did all right, and they were educated, well-traveled. Hot the mother than the red hot, yes, she got on for sale. Hot the mother than the red hot, yes, she got on for sale. I got a good set, she long and tall, she sleeps in the kitchen with a piece in the hall. Hot the mother than the red hot, 
before closing, we cannot help but call your attention to the greatest Negro blues singer who has cropped up in recent years, Robert Johnson. Recording them in deepest Mississippi, Vocalion has certainly done right by us in the tunes Last Fair Deal Gone Down and Terraplane Blues, to mention only two of the four sides already released, sung to his own guitar accompaniment. Johnson makes Lead Belly sound like an accomplished poser. Yes, that John Hammond, the talent scout's talent scout, the guy who discovered and signed Count Basie, Billy Holiday, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, and Bruce Springsteen. That quote is from an article Hammond wrote in the spring of 1937. Skip ahead now, fall of 1938, and John Hammond is putting together a holiday season show at Carnegie Hall called Spirituals to Swing. The idea was to showcase the evolution of black American music from the earliest gospel roots up to the latest craze, Big Band Swing. Hammond wanted Robert Johnson to come to Carnegie Hall and play the blues. He telephoned Don Law with a simple, urgent message. Find Robert Johnson. of looking and asking around, Don Law's agent learned that Robert Johnson had died on August 16, 1938, in Greenwood, Mississippi. He was 27 years old. The exact circumstances of his death are still very much in dispute, but it is known that he took ill after a show and was dead a few days later. His date and place of death were not even known for certain until 1968, when a researcher named Gail Dean Wardlow discovered the death certificate. Well, I wish I was a catfish swimming in a deep blue sea. I would have all Looking women fishing, fishing after me, showing up after me, showing up after me. Oh, love, oh, love, showing up. One more Mississippian to meet. We've already met him in our show, briefly, back in episode two. On August 31st, 1941, during one of his tours of the South to make field recordings, Alan Lomax met McKinley Morganfield, a tractor driver by day and bluesman by night, who went by the stage name Muddy Waters. Not too long after that, in early 1943, Muddy did what so many other black Mississippians did in those years. He packed up what he could carry and got on a train to Chicago. Well, I 
Here is a tall, bold slugger set vivid against the smaller, softer cities, wrote the poet and journalist Carl Sandburg of Chicago. City of the Big Shoulders. Sandberg had it right. In the 1940s, Chicago was magnetic, vast, brawling and sprawling, and the factories were hiring. For decades, the Chicago Defender had been the most popular black newspaper in America. Copies would make their way into many a shotgun shack down south. The Defender actively pushed the migration with headlines like, More Positions Open Than Men For Them. The Chicago Defender, Robert Palmer writes, would also editorialize at length on the contrast between freedom and economic independence in the North and lynchings and servitude in the South. Now, in our second episode, we learned there was a thriving blues scene on the South Side of Chicago in those years. Mississippi immigrants were arriving daily, bringing with them a taste for some of the music from back home. Money started playing regular at a joint called the Macomba Lounge. You may also recall the Macomba was the bar owned by Leonard and Phil Chess. A few years later, the bar burned down. The two brothers used the insurance payout to go on to the record business, and starting in 1947, Muddy Waters became mainstay at Chess Records. As a youngster, Muddy had seen Robert Johnson, who was only a few years older, play in North Mississippi barrel houses. The influence of Johnson on Muddy's playing and singing is obvious and marked. Check out this cut, I Feel Like Going Home, one of Mud's early chess releases. like someone handed Robert Johnson an electric guitar. As we said in episode two, that gut bucket dealt the blues sound, amplified and punched up by exposure to the mean streets of Chicago. A few years later, in 1952, another Mississippian and protege of Robert Johnson made his way to Chicago and onto the chess roster, Chester Arthur Burnett, or Helen Wolf. Together, Muddy and the Wolf put chess records on the map. The relationship between McKinley and Chester and the story of their time together at Chess Records is worthy of more than our quick glance today. But right now, we've got to keep moving. We'll get into the Muddy Wolf story in a future episode of our upcoming new show, Deeper Digs in Rock. Well, I got a little arrow stuff. 
Zwicky North from Mississippi to Chicago with Muddy Waters. Jump ahead again. It's 1958, and now we're going to follow Muddy to one more spot. By 1958, American kids had turned to rock and roll. At Chess Records, Chuck Berry was now the cock of the walk. But British kids were digging the blues and gospel and R&B, even if the American kids had moved on. Muddy booked a summer tour of England in 1958, the same year Buddy Holly toured the UK. English audiences, accustomed to skiffle and country blues, were stunned by Muddy's plugged-in, tough-sounding electric blues. Surprise quickly turned to delight. Muddy was a smash in the UK, and more American bluesmen were to follow, establishing a blues music market in Europe that is still thriving today. The experience turned Muddy into an Anglophile and a regular visitor, according to Owen Adams, who writes about the blues scene for the London Guardian. That same year, Leonard Chess locked down a distribution deal for Chess Records in the United Kingdom. The Chess Sound, the Chicago Blues, now made its way to a new and rabid audience across the Atlantic. I am the little red rooster Too late to crow for days the little red rooster Too lazy to crow for day We've almost made it now back around full circle to Soho, North London where we started today's show with the stand-up narration I did when I visited Soho in the summer of 2015 One more stop and just a quick drop into a town we've already known pretty well. May 10th, 1963, at the Philharmonic Hall in downtown Liverpool, George Harrison of the Beatles got roped into judging a talent show, the Lancashire and Cheshire Beat Group Contest. George was seated, to his amusement and amazement, next to a guy named Dick Rowe, an executive at Decca Records, England's largest record company. A little over a year ago, it was Dick Rowe who decided to pass on the Beatles. Bob Spitz, author of The Beatles, the biography, picks up the story. As the show wore on, the two men chatted amiably about the music business. I told him how I'd really had my backside kicked over turning the Beatles down, Rowe recalled years later, and as it was water under the bridge, George laughed it off good-naturedly. Rowe decided to ask the young Beatle if he knew of any up-and-comers, any bands that Decca should check out. Well, we heard a great group down in London called the Rolling Stones, George replied after a long pause. Dick Rowe of Decca didn't even wait for the show to finish. He caught a train back to London to check out the Stones. I'm 
Prince had first run across the Rolling Stones at the Crawdaddy Club in the Twickenham district of London only a month earlier. Bob spits again. After dinner, Neil Aspinall drove them to the club, where they quite unexpectedly came upon a tumultuous scene. The place was mobbed with a wild and woolly bunch, led by the talented but unstable Brian Jones, whose intensity generated a potent charisma. The Rolling Stones pumped out ambitious versions of grassroots R&B. They bounced effortlessly between Bo Diddley, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, and Jimmy Reed classics. So we've made it all the way back to London now. It's the early summer of 1963. The Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, Keith Richards, Charlie Watts, and Bill Wyman have all been together since the beginning of the year. They play mostly covers of American blues songs, heavy on the chess record stuff, Bo and Muddy and Wolf. And they are the toast of London, just days away from getting a major record deal. We told a story about the Rolling Stones today by telling a story about the music of black America. Because we think that is the origin story of the Stones, rather than where Keith grew up or where Mick went to school or what Brian's dad was like. These five young Englishmen were fanatics about the music of black America. Their only ambition at the time was to get drunk and get laid and play the hell out of American R&B songs. The greasier it was, the funkier, the dirtier it was, the more authentic it was, the better they liked it. That white-hot love affair between the Rolling Stones of England and the blues, R&B, and soul music of America has never cooled down. You can hear it all through the years, throughout their entire discography. The Chicago blues covers they played in their early days, the gospel choir on You Can't Always Get What You Want, the crazy African percussion on Sympathy for the Devil, their great cover of The Temptations Ain't Too Proud to Beg, the dirty James Brown funk of Undercover of the Night. And, unlike a lot of other white acts who have taken up playing black music, the Stones have always been fair and generous. Throughout a celebrated crazy 50-plus years in the top tier of the rock and roll business, the Rolling Stones have done it right. They give songwriting credit, pay out the royalties, and they're willing to lend a hand. They helped Muddy Wanders and Helen Wolf have successful and very lucrative second careers in music. Mick pushed to get James Brown onto national television for the first time in America. The Stones took Ike and Tina Turner to Europe as their opening act, and Ike and Tina cleaned up. There's tons of examples like these. We personally remember one when we saw the Stones in L.A. way back in the early 80s. They had this up-and-coming artist open for them. You might have heard of him, Prince. We will have a lot more to say about the Rolling Stones in later episodes, but we feel this very strongly. The first, last, and most important thing to say about the Rolling Stones is that they are lovers. 
sincere and passionate lovers of American music, especially the music of black America. That's our Rolling Stone story, and we're sticking to it. I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey, we've got a new short-form show coming out very soon. Deeper Digs in Rock. Look out for that one. And keep an eye out for episode 11. Another wave of the British invasion is about to hit. Bye for now, and keep up the rockin'. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.